0: Hey everyone, it's February 17th at the time of recording, and we're going into this title with some high energy because you gotta keep the energy high when you're about to say the best game to start the year is a turn-based JRPG with subclasses. A game that seemed like an odd pivot at the time, when a franchise that was really only known for its action beat-em-up, gangster-on-gangster-but-with-moral-high-ground-reasons style games suddenly unleashed like a dragon to such high praises. And so to me, it wasn't much of a surprise that its newest entry, Infinite Wealth, has come out as kind of like a smash hit. Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth, of course, is developed by RGG Studios, which is how I'm going to refer to them for the rest of the episode, because it is definitely easier than butchering uh, Ryu Ga Gotoku every single time, believe me. People can enjoy this game because it's no longer gated by an overpriced seven-hour $50 US DLC to walk around Hawaii, but you will have to know that everything that happened in that short story was technically canon to whatever was going on here. It's safe to say, Infinite Wealth is an exaggeration, but, dad pun intended, is darn right on the money. Okay, yes, that was kind of jebaited. You got jebated, that was a lead in, it was intentional to try and get a hot topic out of the way. Let's say what everyone kind of scoffed at the moment version info for the game kind of came to public knowledge, because I don't want to have it detract from the game. For those of you not in the loop, or not grabbing every tidbit of news, whether or not this game was going to be crap or not, a lot of people were thrilled by the notion that there was going to be a new game plus, and highly anticipated uh, broke like Big Swell Dungeon. What they weren't expecting is it was going to be gated behind DLC, or effectively bumping your pre-order up to the Deluxe Edition. Vacation Edition or something. And listen, for my story completion, I'm at about 110 hours played. 68 of those hours is from in-game game game time. And that's with me having kind of like messed around watching credits and doing the, the first couple levels in the Big Swell. I did watch a couple videos afterwards of people kind of playing through all the levels of the Big Swell, so I think it just kind of reaffirms my feelings. Everyone who is so sensationalist that, you know, RGG Studios is ruining this game by adding and gating New Game Plus and the Big Swell Behind DLC really needs to simmer down. You don't need the extra dungeon to get anything or to enjoy yourself with this game, especially with the base package. Sure, it might be a challenge if you haven't already been min-maxing your team to the nines. Although I could definitely relate to why people might be upset that New Game Plus, of all things, was gated behind DLC. It's probably the only side that you're going to get me to agree on with the mob of upsetty spaghetti monsters. New Game Plus does seem like it should have been something that was with the base part of the game. Because after going through, the game does have... certain areas where there are sudden jumps in difficulty at set points, like going from one district to another out of logical progression, or for people who like open world games and need to explore every back alley before you get through uh, the story-established plot arc. Safe to say, every time I tried to wander down an alley and try to open a chest before I was supposed to, I really burnt through quite a few items to stay alive, and definitely lost my fair share of money. There's also definitely a point in the game where I found that I was over grinding so much that I basically showed up to kick defenseless baby seals when I was running into level 8 enemies in those Hawaiian make friends mechanic encounters late into the game. I don't really think that changes with New Game Plus. Just kind of the New Game point where you get comfortable enough that it becomes just a downhill run. The rest of everything that comes in those DLCs, You don't need Tsujiman Resort Bundle to enjoy uh, Dondako Island. You don't need the Yakuza CD set, especially because of how crap it is to actually, like, use the MP3 player and have 10 songs that you can choose from. Especially, man, listening, even listening to the Japanese, like I played with Japanese voice actors on instead of Chinese or, you know, put-me-out-of-my-misery English karaoke on MP3. It was nice kind of walking around to sonic music the persona music but i mean there was a japanese podcast on there that i certainly didn't understand actually i think that was part of the base game so maybe forget about that the pre-order jobs which apparently are worth five dollars of your hard earned money are, are definitely not worth wasting anything on unless girls in activewear are your jam or uh the Holy cloth from Head to Toe and Protective Pads and Helmet guys, Both subclasses were, were quite um, pathetic in my eye, and it really doesn't add much more to the you have a specific enjoyment of these kind of things. Everything else, like all of the single units bonus stuff, is basically just accelerated, accelerated Crafting. I was able to make, I would say, one or two items earlier thanks to those single-use bottle caps. But by the time I went back for a third item, I had already had two regular bottle caps for ultimate weapons at around, I think, level 45, which would have put me around chapter nine, I think. By that point, I was already rich from just chugging down Sengoku sodas, vacuuming every important pack of mobs and bosses. I was basically rich enough that I could just start buying the rainbow crystals that I needed. And for endgame mats, you know, as you go through the story, you do run into a couple shark fins and squid tentacles, but really fishing for five to ten minutes will yield you the exact same result. You don't have to be in chapter, I guess it's the finale, but whatever. I think it was actually like, I think it was actually my seventh or eighth attempt in chapter two to fish up. Healing items at the times because I had gotten what is it raw sashimi uh, in one of my fishing attempts that I actually got a squid tentacle just thinking that it might have been food. So yeah, I feel that whatever an extra fifteen bucks as a thank you to be able to go through and play New Game Plus is kind of necessary in the the current economic affair. I don't want to support it, but at the same time I offset that early cost by just. pre-ordering on Fanatical, honestly. I bought the Deluxe Edition with the Vacation Bundle, and it came out, I think, like $4 cheaper than if I just bought the base game. So, believe you me, I really hate day one DLC, but for a game that you love, of course you're gonna have to pay up front. So, okay world, can we just all complain that that we want unceremonious day one DLC to stop because it just literally plagues an industry. But really, like I said, if you get through this review, or maybe even your own playthrough of the game, and you think, you know what? Maybe RGG Studio does deserve an extra $10 for all the content that they put into this game. You know, then do it. Don't just buy it up front. Because this isn't horse armor. This isn't pets. You know, you're not Blizzard trying to grift you out of your money with thinking that D4 is functional game, because all in all, everything you get over and above the base game is really just more fanfare than anything. The the DLC dungeon, while it might have a couple extra steps and difficulty for everyone who wants to run around with every single party member that they might have not been able to play together with, it's not a huge change or really anything that you couldn't experience in, what is it, premium mode? So with that long-winded rant out of the way, uh, I should kind of segue into what JRPG RGG has made. I'm going to stop and say right now that this entire episode, the podcast, is going to be like one big spoiler heaven. So, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Please, you know, realize that there's probably going to be more than enough that I'm going to spoil out this game. And, and I'll say when the like the giant spoilers are coming for when you should s- skip ahead, but this is definitely going to be more of a spoiler episode because infinite wealth is a lot like the original like a dragon it wants story events to stay canon it wants the characters to stay involved in the universe that they've created basically but and again it's a turn-based GRPG. it is a fairly grindy game certain aspects of the game do kind of like alleviate that a little bit Smackdowns do remove a little bit of the pointless, like, one-round fights, even though they they come at a discounted gold and EXP rate. Even before I was able to do Smackdowns and, like, any sort of packs, I was able to use the Samurai class and basically just get, you know, one or two good fire arrows was really all it took to get even the most random encounters down to the 20% health or simply one-shot everything. The final act of the game when every multi-round yakuza brawler mode starts and they just like line up like bowling pins it was just like the most embarrassing thing to just knock out an entire group of enemies with one fire arrow and i mean all it, all i really did to drive that further was just have the gun damage accessory and have the MP accessory to set you back to full MP because it was such a cheap skill to use. Finding skills like that really did make the grinding less annoying. The regular gameplay was kind of easy enough that you could just throw on every piece of money clothing and fairy lay to make sure that you are getting the most money and all the additional drops that you could think of without gimping your party. At least that's how I experienced the base level of the game. I will say that I did sway towards prioritizing a high-level Kintana earlier off just because of how useful the base kit for Samurai was. Like, it was the second weapon I made after Katsuga's 2nd last baseball bat. Samurai overall was kind of a good choice that carries gun damage, sword damage, and fire damage that basically just carries you through most of the game. Kiryu spent most of the game as one until uh, you switch back and he gives you hold down right trigger to let out your emotional rage in fist format and then slowly as you get through all of the uh, bucket list stuff you kind of realize how broken Kiryu's base is for, for basic attacks like you see how broken it is for proximity and back attack damage that later on I just switched them back because it was so good. It didn't change the fact that I was still relying heavily on kind of like the the samurai kit or even like the uh, desperado kit but it was also really nice because the fact that curio uses his fists makes that like the easiest ultimate weapon <laughs> to farm in the game because you don't have to and that way you could just throw on like your assortment of inherited skills you know his fists were pretty good you know right after the ultimate back that you have to make by collecting poo from toilets i guess since i'm talking about jobs i really like that Female companions have, I would say, probably, like, the nicest rounded classes. Some classes that I wish the men had kind of, like, the mirror reflection of. But it was kind of disappointed to see that they only get, like, half of the jobs that the males get. And I really only ever felt like I wanted or needed to use two or three of them outside of the base class for the character. Like, I didn't use the dominatrix or the tennis player to me they were both kind of just like lackluster at least it didn't feel like it had a notable difference over basically the where the way that i got my characters running with uh what the hell's it called kinochi the female ninja since i'm just like ranting now i might as well just list this note while i still have it on my screen the best classes for male were samurai for basically aoe fire arrows desperado uh not for the actual class, but for the one skill that was called I think it was like wide swing or something. It costs like 54 MP but you rope in the target that's the farthest from the group and then you make the rest of the group pay by swinging them around. It was just hilarious. Uh, Aquanaut, and mm, whatever the male version of Geodancer for heels is called. Wait, why don't I have this written down here? Uh, I think it's, yeah, there's it right here. Fire Dancer. Every base class kind of has like a solid kit that makes you choose whether or not you want to use like the, uh, the cop base kit or turn Adachi into a, uh, Aquanaut like I did. And I think that'll also weigh heavily on whether or not you farmed up enough of the mats to craft their ultimate weapon. It felt like almost all of the exclusive base jobs needed shark fins, uh, a cough drop tin, and more than not just like a truckload of rainbow crystals. And then most of the shared jobs, I felt like 80% were a mix between shark fin and squid legs, kind of edging towards more squid legs than shark fins, but it really made it easy for me to make one desperado weapon, one samurai weapon, thanks to just great AOE skills. And then use non rainbow crystals to make like Aquanaut weapons or Namba's final weapon. It was a mix of weapons that made combat a little bit too easy. The movement circle was an interesting change. It did kind of gate early range when you definitely wanted to pick up a bench to smash over someone's head or find an exploding barrel. Or, you know, after having all those like, hey, why don't we sit down and have a heart-to-heart while I patiently wait for you to get off your phone so I can talk to you. You know, tag team combo attacks. More often than not, those stupid jerks would just like, spread out and walk away when you wanted to attack, or you'd set up a skill and suddenly your character would detour and go three steps to the left and mess up a linear AoE attack. Like I guess the the movement around, uh, I mean from, from the original game, I did find the movement around changing the mechanics of the game like really interesting. Every once in a while you kind of get lured into AI stupidity like when you go up and you attack a mob or you combo into a mob and you push them into a corner and suddenly it's their turn next and your entire team gets AoE'd because they want to crowd you at that one instance instead of the previous time where they were just all spread out. Same goes for heals. You'll be gravitating towards the biggest heals. Uh, females get the big concert heal and then I think males get... Uh, a second level of like barbecue hangout heal for the biggest range in restoration. Outside of that, though, I would say that you should probably get comfortable at least having one character with regen. So it'd be like Zhao uh, or any of the males since they can do fire dancer. Because every once in a while, and when you see them doing it, you'll be like, "What are you even doing?" And that party member will be like, "Hey, yeah, yeah, don't worry about me." Uh, I'm just going to stand on the other side of the street of Hawaii in combat for some reason. I feel like they were a little bit too generous with uh, auto attack, regen, but I feel like they tried to curb that with some of the items that you could get. All of like the party heal items, I believe, were crafted only, at least that I can remember. They removed all but, I think, one skill that restores MP, and it comes from a light, I think it's a dancer attack that only has a chance of basically adding five or six more mp than it used so most of the game you basically just rely on throwing on uh regenerative accessories or you know like uh Chitose's final armor just kind of making her like a an immune battery <laughs> i, had a, I had that giant size just kind of like leading up to my next point and it's the one aspect that i kind of have mixed feelings about and it was definitely harder to put into words than i thought it would and that's because is talking about RGG taking a page out of, I don't know, Bethesda's book and reusing the same engine, reusing the same map, reusing the same menus, basically everything that was used in the original Like a Dragon uh, and Like a Dragon Gaiden and so on. And I've been super critical of this, so don't get me wrong. For me, the game could have easily been 60 hours in Hawaii, so while I wasn't expecting, spoiler 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 are you ready for it kiryu and katsuga splitting up halfway through the game once kiryu started coughing up blood from overexerting himself and then the group and him kind of agreeing that he was a liability and needed to take it easy only to resume his bare-fisted brawling back in japan the exact same way he was doing it before kind of a weird plot turn but anyways i'm kind of disappointed that I had to wait till the end of the game to have all my party members together again. Tangent aside, Hawaii is quite gorgeous. And uh, funny enough, kind of as a Canadian anyways, it is kind of the true testament to how outsiders might view America. You know, you walk around, you see a large variety of normal people, but most of them are just tourists. (laughs) There was definitely an odd absence of kind of Native Hawaiians and, you know, the life that you might see outside of Resort Hawaii, but maybe it's best that Japan doesn't capture any of that in video game form. And of course, every person who conceptually might think that America is full of giant chunguses just like merrily walking around. But I mean, like, it's the positive side. They're just kind of all happy, friendly people. They wave back. They're easy to bump into on the beach. But if we're talking about reusing the same engine, the biggest advantage, which I would say Starfield misses by a mile, is just how well the game runs in retrospective. Like, the game runs fairly well on older hardware. Uh, And it was me playing on the ROG Ally uh, at basically 900p with XESS on, just having like a stellar experience. I did try FSR 3, which i guess is technically fsr 2.2 versus what i think is base fsr 2 if they've thrown in every single implementation i can safely say after trying this on the rog alley that is basically the same experience as like a dragon gaiden frame gen pacing is just something that i can't visually enjoy and i don't know whether that's a hardware issue or just like a varying fps issue or like the rate at which the screen refreshes or whatever unholy thing that they're trying to accomplish with this but it's kind of a big miss and i think it's a little bit embarrassing that amd is coming to the table with something like this even though fair enough rgg studios kind of implemented it the way that it's designed i did essentially double my fps in most stages it's just something that i i can't enjoy And just because I played the original on my old laptop, uh, I booted it up and I played from I continued from a save in standing around in Japan so that you could see like traffic and uh, the canal uh, on a 2060 mobile with DLSS enabled on just like the highest quality. And uh, DLSS is so much better in every way imaginable. It takes having basically AMD on everything, including my home computer which i still to this day always go in knowing that i'm going to be doing either you know native rendering or xcss you come to realize that you will definitely take 60 to 70 fps with dlss over 100 to 120 fps with fsr3 frame gen any day on average uh in hawaii uh 900p i think i had the texture scaling at 16 times and then everything else was basically the lowest setting possible you would get steady lows of somewhere between like 40 to 45 fps but generally you were sticking around that 50 fps area once you go back to japan it's an entirely different scenario i was finding myself bouncing anywhere between 60 to 70 fps anytime you're staying over 48 fps with that vrr you basically just didn't see it But it definitely left me in a more positive state when I had to sit and reflect on it that this game is just far more approachable than Starfield because you're not playing a game at 20 FPS. You're not walking into a city and watching your computer crumble pretending like Starfield was a game that was approachable to the masses. RGG Studios did do that and they delivered it succinctly. I think it, we just have to come to a point where we can make a competitive argument that it's not about using the old engine. It's about designing a good game, and Starfield is just not a well-designed game. And it's a tangent I want to move on from because I, I I had a second note here to talking about items because Starfield, you know, 3D modeled and put gravity physics on basically everything in the game, uh, whereas Sega basically just signed a deal with 7-Eleven to take pictures of everything in the game and not have to, you know, 3D model it and do light reflections and figure out how they're going to get ray tracing to work. Because it's like, the the items have plenty of variety and infinite wealth. It almost gets to a point where there's just kind of like a pointless amount of them. Since you can basically just buy and carry, it's like, Ew, you know what? I'm not going to eat a fish sandwich. Give me a steak bento or like the premium bento, or ice cream, or I'm only going to eat hot dogs. I always felt like it was more fun. It wasn't like, here's your punishment for carrying food that heals one three hundredth of your HP. Like Starfield had you feeling. And I think like they did it right. Like a dragon games make me feel hungry when I go into 7-Eleven and buy snacks for my character. I feel like I should be going to buy snacks in real life. But again, it's all kind of just, like, sad items because you can restore a a pitiful amount of HP with onigiri or, you know, you can drink... I'm just sitting here thinking. I think, like, the weirdest thing that shows up in this game versus, like, actual Japanese drinks is, like, you can buy Mountain Dew in Japan. Because once you get out of those, like, supermarkets where you're buying drinks that restore 10 MP and buying food that restores 30 HP... You get through all of like the serious stuff and like the food that you can eat in Hawaii, which somehow restores more HP than it did in Japan. Maybe they they make a case that it's just more filling. But otherwise, once you get micro shopping out of your system, you're basically dependent on fruit craft. You know those random make tea. You basically just start going through those fruit craft stations to give you. S- to give yourself those emergency items when you get into those fights that really suck or, you know, the random bosses that I didn't approach at the correct level. Or even at the correct level. Basically, any red mob with a crown was a target to be reckoned with. Having good party heals and MP management, I would say through the first two-thirds of the game, that was super important. It was definitely hard trying to get some of the items, but I definitely felt like I was over-prepared because I always had the items when I needed it, and by the time I thought that I would be able to go back and restock to make sure that I had enough, I had my cup basically runneth over with all the battle regen, weapon mods, items that I just never ended up having to use, and then again, like, you know, Chitose's final armor giving her just a boatload of MP when you buff her. Weapons were a different story. Uh, I basically went from buying, you know... I went from having 1-star weapons to getting 3-star weapons to equipping 4-star weapons when I realized that I wasn't keeping up with the game to straight-up buying the 5-star weapons that I realized that my characters should have at a certain point. And then by that point, I had progressed so far into the story that I could just do Drink Link or whatever it was called to get the base weapons for Ultimate Weapons. Like I said, again, I did jump the gun a little bit and made the step before ultimate weapons for samurai and lady ninja kunochi or whatever it's called just because i felt like it was the easiest class to level a new party member with that wouldn't be stuck with just like random single target damage attacks that did nothing uh, and i mean to get those weapons i guess we can talk about mini games too the mini games are always such a fun topic with yakuza games Infinite Wealth went back to the uh, 3D model, you know, Cabaret Hostess, which was uh, definitely wasn't expected, whereas Infinite Wealth went back to having 3D modeled Cabaret Hosts, where like a Dragon Gaiden actually had real models, which was a little bit weird. But like both these games, uh, they got rid of Slots, uh, Pachinko, and instead you now had snap a picture of the buff dude's junk in a singlet aka sicko snap the the food delivery minigame was neat it was kind of wild and wacky i got bored of it like super quick and like basically the base version of the game never leveled up there was never an intermediate stage it never seemed to get more difficult than like the initial offering which is a little bit sad and then the the big minigame which was sujimon It kind of makes me wonder it's like if we consider like a dragon gaiden essentially standalone dlc is this not just like standalone dlc 2.0 like just thinking back and comparing the two like a dragon games there isn't much once you start to consider all of like the look back and think and essentially hawaii despite what they removed from the original game which maybe you know maybe it warrants having a completely separate game. But in both games, like, you want to play all the mini games enough to solve mid-game gear problems and base gear problems until you are more rich, more about being rich later on. Uh, but the increments were a bit annoying. There are certain parts where you're like, okay, well, I can't find a way to go back to the casino to get, like, so-and-so's weapon. So you're basically just playing whatever you can in hopes that you run into a casino later on into the game. You know, and then by that point, you're at the mercy of whatever the max bet ranges are. So it was a little bit annoying to, like, get to the point that you could get those weapons, that you could, you know, play poker enough. Or, uh, now that I think about it, there were two separate kinds of casinos. So they had two separate item pool rewards, which I had to run around to try and find to get uh, a specific weapon. And soundtracks, now that I think about it. Those were kind of the items that I specifically targeted. And at one point, I think I said, screw it. I am finally going to learn how to play Shogi. Shogi is like 3.5D chess. The fact that you can put captured pieces back onto the board whenever you want is kind of like an Inception level of chess that my brain just doesn't function when I'm drunk and trying to play this game. And I mean, like, I put in a lot of effort this time. I did all the puzzles which I thought were a good warm-up to, you, to play the weakest NPC. And I could even pull a single win after five like legitimate attempts. I ended up just downloading a, uh, a Shogi app on my phone and forcing the NPC in-game to go first so that I could play their moves and then watch AI beat me on my phone so that I could make it a win. And that's the last time I'm going to play Shogi because I suck. But I mean, outside of doing that, I basically just played every other game that I have played before, and I'll put a big asterisk and say enjoy. Uh, I do enjoy playing Mahjong, so Mahjong was fun to play. Koi, Koi, or whatever the old school Japanese, like stick and card games, I just, I mean, they're there. I'm not gonna pretend like I'm an expert in them, but they were easy enough that I could just collect my item, collect my soundtracks, and then leave. The arcade games got only a slight shuffle. Uh, Spike Out was interesting, but kind of a, a lame game coming from someone who loves b- beat em up games. Virtual Fighter, I mean, is always going to be there, so it's kind of staple. Uh, so is, what is it, Ride On or whatever the motorcycle game is called. Fishing was, uh, fishing. Like, you can probably tell by my enthusiasm that fishing is not my jam. Uh, and then, of course, they had crane games, which they upgraded the crane games to have those, uh, whatever, inefficient, you-need-to-learn-how-to-nudge-the-box crane games to release your prize, that you see on whatever YouTube all the time. So I can tell you right now that I'm basically ready for my trips back to, whatever, Japan and Asia so that I can get an $8 toy from $40 worth of attempts. Aside from that, everything else, it's just all the fun stuff. Golf is there, baseball is there karaoke is there if you're really that desperate and hey if uh, playing minigames is not your jam just go hang out and stare at virtual uh, assets at the bars so let's direct this towards kind of finalizing the game I have a few <laughs> I have written here a few key thoughts but I think it's more just kind of me talking about my thoughts on the story and just kind of how I feel overall about how this game sizes up so spoiler warning for the millionth time this is where I've I, totally spoil the game so infinite wealth was kind of weird infinite wealth felt better suited than the original infinite wealth was kind of titled weirdly because like if you think about it you were like the what is it like, the ceo of like a venture capitalist owning <laughs> landmarks in japan The that game was infinite wealth katsuga could have just like sat there and just like played on his phone and did absolutely nothing and then like go relive his admirations of rehabilitating Yakuza by paying them white-collar rates to go do blue-collar work. Have Yakuza cleaning trash off the highway. Because in this game, they they definitely don't refer to it, but the infinite wealth you gain is the friends you make along the way. And as cringe and as catchphrase crap as that is, they definitely didn't do anything to make me think otherwise. Don Ducko Island making me do actual work for my money didn't make me feel like I had infinite wealth. I felt I had way more work to do uh despite the fact that whatever the the resorting of labor assets was definitely a lot better than animal crossing in Sega format but anyway uh after you get through the uh the the final battle Kiryu basically just says that he is the one who failed everyone and that he failed Abina, and, you know, he does everything that he possibly could to do it right and not solve everything with his fists. And then, of course, he collapses, and after thinking he dies from that final boss fight, uh, they helicopter him to a hospital where he is kind of left on, like, an open edge as they roll into the credits. Uh, spoiler, of course, Kiryu is shown alive and very, very, very tired at the end of the game because he lost his Yakuza hair and now he's back to Sophisticated man Kiryu hair Which to me is a happy ending In my books It it has at the very least Safeguarded my brain From sadness Uh, In the end he is An inpatient so he's signing up for treatment For his cancer instead of being Just like you know a big tough man And rubbing some dirt in his cancer while he has a drink In hand so you know uh, Maybe RGG Studios Is just gonna stretch out that remission period for please, five five or more, seven more games they even stuck with the key theme of never letting him see his loved ones, aside from the one event in the game where you get to see him listening behind a door I feel the happy but cliffhanger ending is just continuing the ultimate bait into buying the next title of seeing when Kiryu is gonna actually see his family, but more so It took getting to the end to feel like Kiryu was the real main character in the game. Even though Katsuga is just kind of like the lost puppy who has a fan base for some reason, uh, and is actually terrible when he tries to be charismatic, the overall plot arc kind of builds up and, you know, during the game, it sadly feels like a little bit of a letdown in the end, when you think about everything that doesn't involve Kiryu. But that's kind of like the the downside to Yakuza games. I never felt like the actual story events. I feel like they have like the storyboard, right? But it's not that impactful. The overall plot arc, like the buildup during the game, it's just kind of a letdown. The big bosses at the end of the game that I thought were going to be like super hype, like really strong, really just didn't do the game justice for what the story had built them up to, you know, at that point. I thought when you go to fight Bryce that you were fighting some like super OP god uh, who was going to you know, met- make you regret living because you're fighting at the bottom of a toxic waste cave. When really all I did was just spend five minutes scrubbing him down with <laughs> water weakness. Uh, Ebina 2, although I think that fight was actually more challenging and a, a little bit better, like well-rounded... You know, it was actually challenging because he could RNG some big damage on characters. And I even had, you know, one character die who I think was at like 500 health or something. But basically that fight was basically just like the final boss. And it was a little bit disappointing. It it was actually kind of nice. Like if you watch the actual cutscenes, maybe Yakuza style anime throwdowns is what they do best. But for me, the, the, the ending was too short too succinct not epic battle enough and i don't think that's something that new game plus is going to change but at the end i really enjoyed playing this game i ducked friends who wanted to play multiplayer games just so that i could keep playing uh and my goal right now is to go back and play for a few hours and print money on don Doko island even though i definitely don't need the money anymore uh and then i'm gonna go and beat the uh, big swell and then debate how much i actually want to Grind out a second playthrough because I have another Sega game, Persona 3 Reloaded, just you know, sitting on my computer and my ROG Ally. Uh, at the time of my completion, uh, it looked like there was only 23% of players who have actually beaten the game, which for three to four weeks after launch, I think is fairly high if you think about like other longer, deeper games. But really. In my opinion, the game felt quite padded, uh, especially with the grinding that you have to learn to get efficient with. Like, early on, I was struggling to get, like, a full set of meaningful gear on my characters. But then, by the latter half of the game, there wasn't even a reason to go to the super boutique stores to get, like, the $100,000 US armors. Because story chests and just kind of, like, boss drops trivialized everything. Like, way early on, Tsujuman was the only way to make actual money, because, like, those fights where you're getting $70 in Hawaii didn't really make much of a difference. And then, just by the end of it, I was, you know, rolling around with 500 million yen in the bank with nothing to do. I really didn't like that wave at the everyone mechanic was what you needed to do to race stats, too. Kiryu was max thanks to, uh, drink link and bucket list and I guess all of like the rollover that you get from other achievements that you get on Katsuga but for Katsuga I only got a couple categories to 10 by the end of the story uh, and that's with doing all the quizzes surprisingly I did all the quizzes by myself without looking up guides some of them were uh, a, a little bit hard and had to be repeated like the one that you can only get one wrong answer for and then the old that quiz i had to do less times than the botanical flower one i think i did repeated the botanical flower one like seven or eight times because my god who cares the planting order of pumpkins and what time of the year that you need to plant sunflowers you need to plant sunflowers from april to june by the way and pumpkins you know in like a triangle shape in a single pot but anyways that thanks to that I'm getting my little trowel and Miss Daisy hat out just so I can be ready for the farming season this year but if I could stay on topic for once and just get back on track the complete reuse of Like a Dragon but with Hawaii as a second location really felt like you needed to have a little more nostalgia for Like a Dragon to continue to enjoy your game or even maybe so maybe I'll say it like this You need to have the nostalgia there to do a completionist run. The running from spot to spot reminiscing about like the old games uh, that RGG had you doing. But early on it felt like me putting a nail in Kiryu as a character's coffin. Like this was the last game of the series or something. But I can tell that that's not what happened. It was nice to kind of go back across how many countless games and see everyone in the franchise who I guess still existed. Hopefully it was a fun trip down memory lane for the team rather than just we need to add some game filler, but it was like the separation of Kiryu and Kazuka was really interesting. I still would have rather had all my characters there at the same time, which doesn't work for the story. If I had to stop and summarize this incoherent ramble, I would just say that Infinite Wolf is a solid 8 out of 10 in my books. I think it starts the year off right, and performance-wise, it is a game that is accessible to everybody. It runs fantastic on older hardware thanks to this old engine and graphic-style prioritizing function over pointless advances in game technology. It's really fun, it's funny, it's true to the original, and it is kind of a true follow-up to the original Like a Dragon. Just to be honest, in my opinion, I felt like you were just running back and forth across a lot of areas, and it didn't feel like there was a lot of depth to it. Something that revisiting a lot of old areas, you know, didn't really help with. I hope that a lot of people are starting to see things the way that I do. You can't just have AAA Studios just slapping a projected performance profile on its game with little consideration for kind of tactful reflections and lighting. I know everyone with a PC is just kind of like foaming at the mouth, waiting when neon lights are properly reflected off surfaces in a game. Is this the reason why I don't think the game industry is heading in the right direction? Especially the reason I don't feel like the Steam Deck has a very viable life cycle anymore? Is the reason why I don't think... it's the reason why I think Microsoft had to discount the xbox series s when it can clearly still perform adequately just it can't do 120 fps for these developers who just want the game engines to do everything at the cost of like actual hardware performance sometimes i feel like it's a bit of an oversell as like an old person looking back recently there's been far too much overhype and kind of under delivery hardware like rog ally included Uh, And I think this kind of like disconnect and misuse of technology kind of is just the breeding ground for inaccuracies and misleading info. Obviously, it doesn't affect the people who are wanting and capable to throw down $1,100 a year or every two years on a GPU, but I don't think that's realistic or respectful of gamers. So when you get an opportunity to play a game that's fun, Uh, It runs well, almost the same way that we admonish indie games' kind of tech performance. For me, it's not only going to sell well, but it's probably going to be a solid recommendation like across the board, across the industry. And with that, I can say thanks RGG Studios for making a great follow-up game to Like a Dragon. I am definitely emotionally invested in seeing what comes next, and hey, turn-based RPGs, baby. Moving on to news... Uh, I'll only touch on this like early on and just briefly, since it's all still rumors. Uh, but there seems to be a new rumor going out that hopes for a Switch Two in 2024 might not be <laughs> a reality. Or you know, maybe best case might be a Christmas release at this point. Rumors from some developers uh, are being told to target a Q1 2025 launch for the the Switch Two titles. Maybe Nintendo is just kind of being like a good guy and being like, "Hey, listen, Mario is gonna come out at launch. You know, the the end of November. I think that's when the uh, the Wii came out. So you're you're not gonna beat the Mario game that comes out. Don't try and compete with him. He's gonna make a lot of money. I mean, I'm still excited to hear all the news that comes out and whatever announcement we're gonna get. Maybe not sooner, but later. I've been kind of like tepid with my impressions." Or, I guess, the improvements from AMD across all these new APUs. The, don't get me wrong, the 7800 or the 780M GPU is still nice, but I think Intel has like some gloves to throw in the ring. And although we've yet to see proper driver performance, or kind of the state where we kind of just goff that AMD was always so far behind NVIDIA in drivers. Now that we have Intel farther behind AMD, I feel like that really just cements Nvidia in as like the stable, mature company that people are just going to flock to if they ever make a proper handheld. It's AMD and Intel who are just kind of like fighting over each other's market share with these inefficient, but what the people want kind of devices. That and, of course, uh, NVIDIA is making a bajillion dollars from AI, so let the babies fight over games, I guess. Uh, I did get to see the Microsoft... I don't even know what I want to call it. It was a roundtable discussion, but um, it was just kind of like a waste of an hour where they talked about vague topics and just kind of, like, acknowledged things with vague acknowledgments until the, the, the table talk ended. At least, at the very least, they acknowledge that Windows is part of the problem uh, for not only gaming, but handheld gaming. So realistically, at this point, all I can do is hope that 2024 is the year that Steam OS goes multi-platform. Speaking of Steam, there was another Steam Demo Fest, or I guess I'll call it by its actual name, Next Fest, since it seems like they're probably happening every two months or, or, or something now. But while it has been a good chance to see some free advertisement for indie games, this round was a bit of a mixed bag for me. I tried about 5 games and I couldn't recommend m- most of them based on those demos. The one game I did want to try I didn't get to because I screwed up and I didn't select the third box before hitting OK when the MI over 13 button showed up. And I locked my Steam account out of playing that game permanently, so... Uh, well, I guess we'll figure that out if it's actually uh, a solid game. The game, of course, is Dungeonborn, which, it was on the top of the list, it looked pretty cool, but I feel like there was a certain traction that everyone saw from Dark and Darker, or maybe there was already, like, encirclings that these kind of PvPVE dungeoning games were gonna be great, and they're gonna be the next big thing, so everyone's just starting pumping out different versions of them. They're kind of all really 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 rough around the edges at least you know the two that i've been able to try i know they're pushing for it like it's going to be the new trend but i think you have to have one right game for it and these are definitely not it but if i can gush over just one title that i can't wait for it to come out it's a little bit unconventional but uh, the game cryptmaster i thought was going to be a new take on typing of the dead Instead, it was a reimagining of a text-based adventure. Now, I don't want you thinking that you're going to walk one square at a time and then have to type look or get or pull. Or, you know, get e flask. Why can't you get e flask? Because, you know, Monkey Island Adventure Games, this is not. Instead, you have the Crypt Master who is basically demeaning to your party while you go on an adventure to... You know, I don't actually know what the premise of the game is. I'm assuming it's... You're trying to escape the underworld. Or the crypt, or wherever you are. But the gameplay is kind of similar to what you would see in a game like... What's that old title called? Legend of Grimrock? Where it's just kind of like... You're front-facing... Like those really super old... I gotta put my hand down, because I put it in front of my face when I said front-facing. It's one of those, like... You exist in a square tile, and you can... Rotate cardinal directions to see things, which for those old school front-facing dungeon rpgs it can feel a bit motion sickly when you start spinning around and then trying to focus so i really hope they put in like a strafe option at some point but i want to gush over the gameplay because it's just on a different level like you have to spell out what you want to do and it's not just like open it's like they take most of the uh, like the actions out it's Okay, so let me let me follow my points here. Cryptomancer asks if you are dead. And you can reply honestly, which, you know, you're probably dead. Or you can give him sass and say no. And then, of course, the Cryptomancer, whatever, is going to sass you right back. Because you are a disposable corpse. And he has decided to empower you with the opportunity to live or something. You walk up to a box and he asks you to describe something super basic, right? He sets you out with a list of sensory actions and you're supposed to derive that in the box there is a helmet. Now, character abilities are really interesting because, for example, you learn skills by either guessing what the name of the skill is or by taking letters of items that you find or enemies that you kill in order to discern what it is. So, for example, the the first character's first attack is called Hit. When you unlock the helmet... You would have had an H, a blank, and a T. By just typing it into the screen at any point, you can unlock, hit. And when you move forward and you keep moving through, you figure out that the second character's attack is jab. The fourth character's attack is zap. It's really interesting going through, like, using those sensory commands to figure things out. Uh, getting through the timing of skills. Remembering, like, a laundry list of words to how you should hash out combat. So it's definitely like super interesting when you start going at it in this game, because it definitely feels to me like it's a title that you can only play once before you kind of ruin the progression of the game by knowing things like words, descriptions of items, and when you play, what's in the box. But for what it's worth, uh, Akapara Games, and I guess the other two individually named developers on this title, I feel like they have something so interesting here uh, that I just haven't experienced. I'm really forward to looking to see what this game has in store. And honestly, as long as it isn't like a super negative game, for something that's kind of like intriguing and puzzle-like, it's probably going to be a day one buy for me. I'm just interested to see if if the entire game that you go to play through is set in stone, or if those chests, for example, have some sort of RNG to them. It would be super interesting to see if there was like a set of base characters or something or have like a roguelike aspect where you can mix and match you know have randomly generated characters that have to work together maybe i'm thinking too big about it but i have some high hopes for this game uh moving on to headliners like i said earlier uh persona 3 reloaded is out and so anyone who has basically enjoyed the game on ps2 psp or kind of er other ways should probably be tripping over themselves to try and play it now. They definitely made it way more modern, but kept kind of like the core heart of the game intact. I used to play these games on hard, but I'll probably just do a normal, easy playthrough, as I think I've beaten the game about three times now, uh, at least once doing a 100% walkthrough, guided playthrough. But really, it's a game that I like so much that I think I'd like to appreciate every change by going through this, whatever, remake. It's out on Game Pass, so consider helping Microsoft stop the hemorrhage of Game Pass players that they are just reporting that they're losing all the time. To be fair, it was not very apparent whether this was Xbox Game Pass specifically, or PC Game Pass, or just a combination of every offering, but I am assuming that there are a lot of frugal deal hunters who had the 3 years of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate at like $4 a month like I did are probably looking at this thinking, you know, if we're only really getting one to three normie mainstream titles, titles that end up being backlog fodder, and then, you know, being forced to have an account name that's basically a number string just so I can play EA Play games, I'm not going to enjoy Madden 24, so do I really want to spend... I mean, here, it's $12 Canadian a month to get the Bayer Basics. At that point, I just kind of want to say... I feel like you can barely get ad free video streaming at that price anymore. For me, I mean I'll say this right now, it's not a problem for me until 2026, so I'll just plug my ears and go la la la, the world isn't coming to an end for Xbox Game Pass, uh, while Microsoft switches into Overdrive for their Game Pass Everywhere plan. If it's just streaming on other consoles, I'm going to be incredibly disappointed. I'm going to keep this shorter since I went a bit overboard last time. I got to watch the actual gameplay for Final Fantasy 7 Rebirth, and then snippets of the content through the snippets of content at the uh, state of play announcement video, but also I watched the uh, full walkthrough of the demo, which for everyone who doesn't know is about 80% of the calm flashback, and it's a lot more faithful than I thought it would be coming out of Final Fantasy 7 Remake. A just bold statement, and I know I'm going to be wishy-washy, but I feel like it's going to be what everyone wanted from a hey keep the cards on the track kind of final fantasy VII remake combat especially it seems like it's like combat 2.0 and it seems a lot more seamless although i did see a couple scenes of the state of play that kind of make me wonder whether they're sticking to the story faithful or uh, got another serious case of reimagining diarrhea plot like the remake was final fantasy VII rebirth is a ps5 exclusive quote unquote, until May 29th, whatever that's supposed to mean, whether or not PC Master Race can get this on every platform or, you know, just maybe make your own platform so I don't have to default to buying these games on Epic. Steam is what I'm hoping for, but whatever. So Mario versus Donkey Kong remake came out uh, and with a straight face, Nintendo said that it's a $50 US game or, you know, $65 Canadian maple bucks. It's kind of neat but i also saw the first 3 stages in a stream and also saw the entire game can basically be beaten in about 5 hours with what people might be complaining that the game doesn't get more complex than like baby toys considering i thought like a dragon gaiden was not even close to worth your money basically just being over glorified dlc at least it came with a demo <laughs> It, um, it kind of disappoints me that this is the kind of caliber of games that we're going to be expecting on the Switch. It reminds me of like DSiWare, like the, the surface level, barely deep crap that gets shoveled out at a premium on Nintendo devices. And it really doesn't help me with my super pessimistic feeling towards the games that are going to be coming out for the Switch. Last remark I'll leave you with is my impressions of the uh, open beta for Skull and Bones that I played. Ubisoft's self-proclaimed 11-year-in-development uh, quadruple-A game. Now look, I only played an open beta. I'm not gonna pretend like I can give you a complete and fully informed review. Uh, uh, and I will say right now, it definitely looks way better of a game than any other pirate game that I can think of, and that was so deceiving. The issue is, is that you basically can't do any pirating. You can't explore your ship you can't swim you can't go on land except for designated ports and the places that are dedicated ports are basically just like crappy shanty towns even for the big cities it feels like this game should have just been called ships because like you can't even board other ships like when you go to the interaction to board another ship it's just a cutscene, a loot screen and then the ship disappears as if it sank and then you just continue on It it was almost like the game, it was almost like they didn't want to design additional functions in this game. They didn't want it to be deeper than shoot, cannon, don't die. Like, Like, Ubisoft has done some dumb shit, especially from, like, you know, mind and management just having verbal diarrhea. But I'm fully on board with the notion that Ubisoft is trying to recoup losses with this garbage, with this pirate ship cannon shooter with item collection that I wouldn't even call it survivor-like mechanics. I watched Skillops' review, and he does have a solid point. He, he didn't really understand how he could go from something like Assassin's Creed Black Flag that had pirating from a first-person kind of point of view, and then move into whatever Ubisoft is just sharding out. Like, the talent drain must be so real at Ubisoft. Because it's just so pitiful that a game could look so beautiful and then have like Peppa Pig depth gameplay loops for people who have brains but they don't want to try and use it that hard. And the worst of all, it's like I got through this entire description of this game without even mentioning the fact that this is a live service PvP opt-in only game with microtransactions that you can spend real money on so that you can have black and yellow palette sales or watercolor skulls painted on with a separate pirate palette set it's um it's depressing it's really sad and i think that's the only real way i can describe ubisoft published games at this point that at this point if you saw how nice it would look you would play this game for graphics only because all this game really made me do is want to go play Sid Meier's Pirates on PSP or go play Curse of Monkey Island or go play Black Flag or something. But that's it. Thanks for tuning in. I can't express enough how much I appreciate you for simply just tuning into the podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to when I can get back on track with next month's episodes. So I'm not trying to crystal ball myself into a Persona 3 Reloaded review for the next podcast podcast. But I don't really know if there's going to be a lot of other games on my radar that are, like, deep enough that I might turn them into an episode. I know Deep Rock Survivor is is almost out. Actually, I think it might be out. But I don't know if that's going to be episode-worthy. But, rambles off. Thanks a lot. Let's haul it at that. Everyone, have yourselves a good end of February, and we'll talk to you in March. Bye for now.